As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. So we have the return of the viewer favorite, John Wedger. He has his own YouTube channel, as many of you are aware, and his links are in the description box. And perhaps some of you have seen Alan Merritt on John's channel. So Alan is here as well. As you can see from his T-shirt, he is campaigning for beach home survivors. And all the links for that will also be in the description box, as will the address to write to Pepsi Watson, if you want, which um, John is working on, on keeping Pepsi's morale boosted presently. So if anyone wants to join in the letter writing campaign with writing to Pepsi, that's going to be down there as well. So today, you know, it's graphic content warning. We're going some dark places, but these are important stories that need to be told because we are educating people about the horrors of what happened in these care homes. It has become a reoccurring theme on this channel whereby kids are abused, then they get onto drugs because they're not given the tools to deal with it, then they get into criminality, women get into sex work, men get into drug dealing or stealing, over and over and over again. And if we can uphold our mission statement on this channel by ending the war on drugs and putting all that money into going after the predators, and giving them proper sentences, not little slaps on the wrist like what we're seeing. And we're working with Andrew Wallace now of Unseen, who helped bring in the modern day slavery and trafficking act, whereby these predators are getting life sentences now. We are actually combined, all of us combined, can make real changes in the world. And that's what's important about this channel. We don't just want people coming on and sharing the stories. We want people getting out there and doing stuff and, and getting these changes made because the justice system is upside down. You've got young people in prison doing like decades for drugs and you've got pedo priests getting slaps on the wrist because the church comes in, Sins of Our Father, you haven't seen it on Netflix, and just passes them around to a different diocese, hundreds of victims. So it's absolutely obscene and the knock-on effects and the child abuse, the criminality, the victims that come about from the armed robberies and all this other stuff all stems, if you go back to the root cause of it, stop these predators D as a deterrent, give them life sentences, give them castrate, chemical castration, whatever is required to be changing the law. Well, we got two guys here today who are, you know, at the, at the spearhead of making these changes. So it's a real privilege to have John back on Cheers. And to have Alan here. Thank you. Before Alan gets into his harrowing story, John is going to give us a little background information. 
Yeah, like most things, there's always a history. These things are by design. They're never by accident. And I think in um, one of the other podcasts I did with you, Sean, um, a couple of podcasts ago, we went, went on to about how people scratch their heads. How how does this thing get so big? And, and why is there no political intervention? And if there is, it's a matter of an inquiry, not an investigation. And then they said, we've learned lessons, let's move on. You know, and we're talking the most heinous of crimes. So we, we've got to look back in history. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And that's that. And once you understand history, then you're better prepared to know how to deal with this. And you're right. One sixth of the UK's budget goes on, on something to do with the justice system. You know, when when we see that 80% of people that have been in prison, they go on to reoffend. 80% of people in prison come from abusive childhood backgrounds. It doesn't take an expert to work out, you know, in in the penal system, what is going badly awry. When, when you've got in Scandinavia, got in Norway, they've got a 20% reoffending rate. Well, I'll tell you what, that ain't bad odds. We've got an 80%. I, I, I defined this once. Um, I was giving an analogy to someone and I said, if, if I was a contractor, a building contractor, and I said to someone, right, they want an extension built. Right, I'm, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to get a builder in that the government recommend. This builder charges you £450 an hour, which is a going rate for a solicitor stroke barrister in the justice system, right? And and each day your bill is going to be eight grand, which is the fee for a trial for the day. But bear in mind, 80% of all the buildings this guy builds falls down instantly. Are you going to... I mean, they're going to tell you where to go. We, we have brought in the America model, which I was steeped in, and it is just a corrupt money go round where the private prison contracts are in the tens of billions a year and those private prisons give the democrats the republicans tens of millions a year to keep it going it's called political contributions aka bribery but that's come to the uk and, and we've but, got the highest incarceration rate in the but, world but also now. when we in the europe sorry when we look at our childcare system how many pedophiles have saturated it, known paedophiles, and they've been endorsed by politicians. You know, I'm going to go on about PI, Paedophile Information Exchange, a pro-paedophile group that was promoting sex with young boys and grown men and seen as consensual. We've seen how that was allowed by Harriet Harman, you know, and, and how these people that were members of PI were allowed to dictate to our social care system, you know, and, and set down the precedence of how children looked after. I mean, this this is absolute madness. This really is lunatics taking over the asylum, <laughs> you know. So what we've got to look at is uh, that there, there has been uh, orphanages, as we could term them, since the 15th century. Records, you know, go back that far. And ones back then were set up really by Christian charities, by the church. Um, not much more is really known about it. You know, I'm no expert, but, you know, like most things, I, I, I like to know my case and I like to do my research. Until 1834, when um, we started seeing the Poor Laws Union coming in. Now, we've got to look at, at the UK was really prospering. You know, Victorian England was, was thriving. We had an empire that is yet to be rivaled. Um, and, you know, everything needed to be showcased, especially in London. You know, so seeing children destitute on the streets of London wasn't the done thing. Something had to be done. And some of the things that the Victorians brought in were, were quite benevolent. They, they were very forward thinking, you know. 
especially when it comes to things like sanitation, sewage systems and things like that, you know, we were implementing them, you know, more than anyone else was. You know, like, you, you look, take India, there's, there's places there which still haven't got a proper sewage system, which, you know, beggars belief. And also when you see street children in places like the Far East, um, you know, and India, you sort of sit there and think, well, how has that come about? But this was a situation that the UK was in, you know, in um, the 1800s, in the 19th century. So the empire was building. Um, there was a lot of work and families were migrating. So we're seeing a lot of migration from rural areas into the capital. There was nowhere to house them. There was no social housing and slums started. So we're getting areas like the East End and places like that. And kids were then exposed to corruption, you know. And if people couldn't pay their bills, then they were put in the workhouses and children followed in, right? Um, so what was brought in, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they, they brought in a law just saying that children should not be in workhouses. There's got to be a better place for them. So the orphanages, as we know them, were set up and they were divided into categories. So as the decades went on, they evolved. So to start with, um, you had like church would, would build orphanages, um, local businesses would get together and set up orphanages. You've got philanthropists such as Dr. Thomas Bernardo, who I do want to go on about, you know, um, shortly. Not all as it seems in, on that front as well. Um, and, and these places started coming in, right? So you, you had some um, things called district schools were set up and they were taking the kids back to rural areas. So they were going back out into the countryside, setting up these homes and getting the kids into work and into education. And after that, you, you saw a massive influx in what we call the cottage stroke village um, homes, which is what Beach Home was. It was a village home. And these were self-contained villages in their own right. They had their own sports facilities, their own schools, their own churches. You know, they were all inclusive and they, they covered massive acreages of land. Um, you, you had things called scattered homes and these were like single homes which were put in a community so the kids were more integrated into community and they would go to a local school um, and then there was um, another thing called boarding which is what we know as fostering you know and that was always seemed as, as the better thing to do but one thing that all these had in common was that they were getting funded by the poor laws union so there was money in this right how much, I'm not too sure. But what we got to look at also is that the children become a commodity. They become a commodity and it was classed as national and international provision. So there was a need for these children. So children were being exported to the colonies. They were going out to Rhodesia. They were going, going out to Australia and they were going out to Canada. Um, 130,000 children were exported out. Um, mainly they were coming from London, from Ireland and from Liverpool. And one of the biggest exporters of children was Dr. Thomas Bernardo. Now, he went on to set up the Bernardo's Care Homes. Now, I've got to be very careful what I do. I don't want to get myself caught in any sort of um, legal wrangle here. Uh, but this man is dead. And, you know, he had a lot to answer for because not only was he exporting these kids out of Canada, they were being auctioned. And they were being auctioned into servitude and, and hard labour from the ages of 3 to 14. 
Now, this really takes some looking at. These kids were taken off the street. They were classed as waifs and strays. And we hear that term quite a bit. And they were meant to be put in an environment that is not going to corrupt them and it's going to cater from taking them out of poverty and immorality and things like that. But they were getting shipped out, little tiny children, um, out to Canada, you know, which has a harsh climate, you know, has, you know, perishing winters. And these kids were taken to rural areas. They were auctioned and they were given, um, sold into um, farming families and some of which had no concept of how to look after her kids. There's anecdotal evidence that, that came out of the, um, the government inquiry of, of one guy that was kept in a shed uh, and made to live with a dog. And we hear that with the testimony of, of Jenny, the girl, the black girl that I interviewed who was kept in a shed and her foster parents were given an award for, for their um, service to um, ethnic and disadvantaged children, children of difference, which meant handicapped and uh, uh, black kids. Um, and they kept her in a shed, you know, <laughs> that, that's in the UK. But these kids were, were being sold on. They experienced horrors, you know. Um, many of them tried to then get into the military to, to sort of get away from it, to serve in the war as seen as a better option. And they were kept in servitude till they were 18, so they knew no different. And a lot of them weren't educated. They were withheld. And Canada's a massive country. I mean, it's a huge, huge country. So, you know, we're seeing that go in, and, and things do evolve. Um, in, in the 1930s, what happened then was local authorities took back the power. But when you've got um, religious institutions, there was no umbrella um, company that was dealing or institution looking over them. So you've got things like the, the De La Salle brothers who were setting up care homes and, and were abusing, you know, Catholic institution where they were abusing the boys. Again, the De La Salle, Alan, that's where the, the, the lovely Blair brothers were, yeah. I think, were in the De La Salle home. Yeah. And they were, they were pimped out and they were made to rape each other yeah. while priests masturbated. And they were getting paid, you see. And, but there was no regulation. And this is something interesting that, that came out of the government inquiry, the IICSE. I know um, that these inquiries get a hard time by, by the survivor community saying, well, people need to be nicked. Well, listen, something is better than nothing. If it gets out, in, in the air, then, then it's something that we, we look at Lord Janna got a huge mention, uh, as did Leon Britton in these inquiries. Had it been left to the press, it would have never got out or it would have been a very slanted, one-sided tale uh, coming from pro their camp, you know, and not really from from the survivor angle. So, you know, w we look at um, what was coming out of, of the government inquiries and, and we got to take note with this because th there's some harsh facts there. 80% of, of Catholic institutions in the UK do not come under the jurisdiction of the Vatican. They're splinter groups. So if they're not being adjudicated by the government, by the councils and the boroughs, as was brought in in the 1930s Act, um, they're pretty much self-regulating it. And if then the Vatican won't take responsibility of them, well, what happens? You know? Now... Things may have been set up with good intention, but the road to hell was paved with good intention, as, as we know. Now, abuse never really got recognised until the 1980s. The 1980s, you know. 
Um, as well as these residential homes, there was correctional institutions. Um, the first juvenile prison was Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. Uh, Borstals were then brought in to stop the 16 to 21 year olds getting into crime. Uh, detention centres were brought in, but they could only limit to a three-month sentence. This is where we got the short, sharp shock, where they would get the ex-military guys in to really sort of um, run the kids ragged and, and, you know, hammer some discipline into them. And again, we hear time and time, especially when we go to the aged criminals like Lambriano, they said actually all it did was make him stronger and, and more angry. It didn't actually do any good at all. And, and these sort of paved their way into what we know as the Youth Offending Institutes, and on top of that, we, we get things like secure units. But all of them are money-making. Every single one of these things is down to make money. Now, when it comes to abuse and, and testimonies coming out from victims and survivors who then go on to form groups like, like Alan and the Beach Home team um, do, I mean, before, they never really got listened to. And then they started getting listened to and patterns started to emerge. And one of the things, uh, a guy who gives one of the best testimonies to this is James Reeves, Alan. James Reeves gives a, a, a phenomenal testimony. And it's, it's the role that women play in the sexual abuse of children in care homes. And um, James's um, story is that he was in a residential home, I think in Essex, and it was boys and girls, but it was a woman that was running them. And what they did to try and make it less regimented, they would give them uh, titles such as auntie and uncle, you know, and things like that to make it look like a homely environment. And so this was children, I think, from from very um, infant school age up until um, uh, post-pubescent teenage years. The girls were made to line up on the hall every night, line up and sit and watch. The, the the main woman who was in charge, the main auntie of this house, would sit a chair in the hall. The boys, from the ages of five up until in their teens, were made to line up naked, stripped naked, and were walked in one by one to be thrashed and caned in front of the girls. I mean, what is that going to do to your mind? You know, it's going to twist your mind so abhorrently. And... So why are women abusing children like this? Why were women allowed to abuse children? Well, there's always a reason, right? People, let's get this right. People sexually abuse children for one reason, because they want to. No one forces them to, they want to. And we can sit and we can blame duress due to satanic abuse, uh, you know, and everything else or mental health problems. No, you choose to do it. It might be done in a satanic environment, and as we, we have seen, uh, like with Isabella in an in indigenous um, negative belief system such as voodoo environment, but at the end of the day, they choose to do it. And they found that um, when these homes were set up, there's always a lack of men. A lot of the kids end up on the street because the men aren't there, you know. And it's a common denominator all the time, a lack of men. We hear it all the time. When we hear, you know, rap singers calling out for anti-gun violence, you know, gang violence, gun violence, and saying, where's the male role models? Well, exactly. Where are the male role models? But the UK has been fraught with, with campaigns from Napoleonic to the First World War, you know, to the Second World War. Okay, recently, not so much um, in that respect. Um, but, you know, 
during the turn of the last century, right through to the middle of the last century, there wasn't much respite for men in this country, you know. They were getting a pretty much a hard time. So there was a lack of men due to the campaigns that were going on and due to the empire building. So women were brought in to manage these homes. Um, a lot of the women that abused tended to be in their 50s, that sort of age group, and were unmarried or war widows. Now, there's um, something else comes in, the psychology of this comes in. Well, why would they do that? Where's the matriarchal sense? Well, we saw it in the Catholic institutions with the sisters, with, with the convents, the spitefulness of these unmarried um, barren women, as it was classed, you know. And Kareen Hutzterbart, the FBI profiler, always goes on about the abuse that a woman can, can meet out to a child is on a level of spite that a man could not muster, you know. However, men do go on to abuse far, far more. Um, but this is what was going on. Women were responsible for the majority of the abuse in the early years of the last century. Post-war, men started to come into the scene, right? But they were never classed as professional people. So they were never brought in when it comes to strategy meetings. They felt devalued. Now, there's, there's a, a saying um, that goes with this, and Sean, it's called kicking the office cat. So they were so, um, some of the staff were so disgruntled at not having any value um, in their life because the authorities wouldn't see them as professionals. So that would go back and they'd take it out on, on the kids. The men came in um, to try and balance this out. And we saw men that had served in military campaigns, which would be classed now as post-traumatic stress disorder. There was a, a lot more harsh um, discipline back in them days. And so the abuse started to change. And what you find in the care homes, girls are six times more likely to be sexually abused than boys. But if boys are abused, majority of abuse on boys is homosexual abuse, homosexual sexual abuse. Now, again, this is not pointing the finger at the homosexual community or anything else. This are facts that came out of the government findings. Um, but we look at politics now. So we've looked at the influence war has had and, and the rise of the empire has had on kids' homes. Now, we've got to look politically. We started getting more and more boys sexually abused. And another fact is that the care homes where the most amount of abuse went on were always in labour-run constituencies. And again, that's not by accident. This is going to dovetail into something that I said in one of my previous interviews with you, Sean, about um, paedophiles in Parliament. We started looking at moving now into the 1960s equality laws coming in. Okay, So men that wanted sex with children were worming their way into the care system under the auspice of being a homosexual. They didn't need to provide verifiable references because it was seen as discriminatory or intrusive. So all they had to do was provide two references, which could have come from their friends or they could come from fictitious bodies. They were not allowed to check up on them and they were then given a job. And if they were caught abusing a kid, they could then hide behind the fact that you're picking on me because I'm homosexual. Okay, so this is what was happening. In reality, these people were paedophiles that found their way in. And then what we also started seeing is the influence that, that, that paedophilia in Parliament, 
local authority and the education system started having on these care homes, right? So a report came out in 1945 called the Curtis Report, and it was really damning. And it was just to say, look, these kids are getting a hard time because it was post-war. And when they come back and they started evaluating what had gone on, they realised there was a problem with kids coming out of the care system or in the care system. So the Curtis Report was brought in to say, look, if kids have got no mum and dad, which the Second World War had a massive influx of illegitimate babies. You know, men were away fighting and there were women getting pregnant by American soldiers, by local men and everything else. And it was frowned upon in them days, you know. Um, and we saw it more recently in, in Southern Ireland with the, the convent homes, you know, that going on there. So there was this huge spike in illegitimate babies and they were given up to care. Now, if they didn't have a mum and dad, they were put straight into adoption. But if they had um, any sort of family, they were told that they must be kept together. Uh, but it wasn't policed, so it was just ignored. And they found that the men that started working in the care homes, becoming managers, were drinking with the senior social workers. So you've got this conspiracy of silence coming in, this very pally-pally environment started building up all around, you know. Um, the Children's Act uh, came in in 1948 to sort of really make these care homes legally accountable for what was going on, for the abuse that was going on. But again, nothing was really done until the 1980s. Um, but it was influenced, the, the social care system was influenced at a very high level and it was influenced by academics, paedophile academics that had connections to parliament and to the higher echelons of the church. And the example of this is a guy called Peter Wrighton. Peter Wrighton was a, a, an ex-military guy. Uh, he was an academic. Um, he'd become a senior social worker. He was a probation officer. He'd become an English teacher. And he started writing papers uh, to, to do with social care. And he ended up becoming a senior lecturer for the Open University. And I think there, there's a... I'll get the name of the report. He wrote a report which became the Bible for social care and, and for um, social services to follow. The man was a paedophile. Um, he openly stated that sex between a carer and, and uh, a resident should not be frowned upon. Now, that is totally contrary to the law, right? It's called the abuse of a position of trust. That is prison. If a teacher a police officer, a social worker is having sex with anyone, that's prison. Uh, end of. This guy went totally against it, yet he was allowed his voice, right? His best friend uh, was a bloke called Charles Napier. Charles Napier was a founder of Pi, right? It was his best friend. Charles Napier is a convicted paedophile. Peter Wrighton was caught importing child pornography from Holland, and he, he just come out with the fact that he never ordered it, but they sent it to him and he was willing to accept it, but he didn't know what it was. It was child pornography, you know? Um, and this guy was writing the papers for social care. He was lecturing at the Open University. His, another one of his best friends was a bishop. You know, all these people have influence. All of them have influence. Uh, Peter Wrighton was also found to be member number 51 when they raided Pi's office. So he, he is an active paedophile and protected at the highest possible echelons. Now, what came in from the Kirch report 
was the implementation of kids in care with the 100-year rule. Now, we hear it all the time, the 100-year rule, 100-year rule, and, and what it is, it's a disclosure act, right? I mentioned before about a D-notice. A D-notice is served whenever any media agency wants to expose something that, that could potentially affect the government, and they were serving D-notices on journalists that were speaking out about paedophiles in Parliament. Um, but they they are a tool of the military intelligence service, right? D-notices were brought in during the First World War um, under the Official Secrets Act to silence So why is an intelligence, an MI5, MI6 tool used on civilians? It don't make sense. This is all the work of Winston Churchill, okay, who, again, questions can be asked about this guy. Um you know, seen on one hand as being the saviour of the Second World War, but there's there's another element of truth behind this as well. So Winston Churchill decided that the 100-year rule is going to apply to, to care homes. And 100 years is used because legally that's that's the lifespan of a human being. Right? That's why it's 100 years. It's 30 years with politics, but when it comes to individuals, it's 100 years. It used to be for medical records, and then they made it for all their records. So you could see these cover-ups coming time and time again. And then we move to more modern times. They've got away from the big village schools like Beach Home. And now it's gone to the smaller private-run businesses. And like I mentioned before, this is a money-making entity. £2,000 per child per week. Bosh, 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 bosh. And then what we have seen with the children being trafficked out, it's nothing new. Bernardo's was part of the machinery that was doing it, part of the machinations that, that, that allowed this to go on, you know. And then these people are revered as being the saviours, but are they really, you know? We we were uh, a good friend of ours, Sandy, um, up in, was in a kid's home in the Quarrier's home. So there's a, a, a guy called Quarrier. He set up these children's homes, again, village schools all around the UK. And each time he moved a kid from one to the other, uh, he was paid in money, a transference money. So it was money, and it's trafficking. And of course, when they were there, at the very least, they were whipped and beaten. But really, it was procurement for sexual activity with members of staff, and nothing is ever done. So, you know, really, that is it in a nutshell, how this has come about. You know, child traffic, sex trafficking, however we want to term it, if you shut your eyes to it, you ain't going to see it. If you close your ears to it, you ain't going to hear it, and it's never going to come and speak to you, right? It needs a proactive approach. The signs are all there that, that a kid is being sexually abused. Um, they're not teaching it in schools, you know. Um, luckily now I'm, I'm going into institutions, I'm being asked to, to you know, uh, give my slant on it and, and the ICSA inquiry is, is promoting uh, my role in some of that as well. And um, As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know, when you've got people like Peter Wright and that are setting the narrative and, 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 you know, and the training schedule for this, what chance does anyone, not just in speaking out, anyone who wants to investigate this, where's it going to go? It ain't going to go anywhere. They're going to be beaten down. They're going to close ranks. So it's not going to happen. Um, when I started my, my campaigning, uh, you know, a few years ago, I, I got a message through from Alan. I'd never met Alan before. And Alan turned around and said, look, I'm going to be serving um, a petition on um, on Hammersmith and Fulham Council to do with uh, Alan's time in Beach Home. And I hadn't really known about Beach Home. It had cropped up. It had. I had um, quite a few people had come to me that had been in Beach Home and were taken to places like Elm Guest House, etc. So I had heard of it. And Alan had documents that needed to be served. So I said, I'll come and do a podcast. So I went down on a, on a rainy Wednesday morning, went down to, um, down to Hammersmith. We set up a camera and the next thing, security have thrown us off the premises. <laughs> but from there, um, you know, I've gone on to support Alan, Sue, Jean and the other Beach Home survivors in their campaigning. So, I mean, that that's how I've, come about and, and we work closely ever since but you know sorry Al, I'll, I'll pass over to you now you know <laughs> it's uh, <clears throat> a lot of metaphors John uses uh, the underlying tones are so so real in everything he says and everything he's said uh, when I was like I was born on the 25th of March in 1955 I was the youngest of four I had two sisters and another brother uh, born in Hammersmith Hospital um, we lived in West London Shepherd's Bush area, and uh, it was uh, a tough existence. Um, my mum and dad were both alcoholics um, and drank, and we were just basically running around the streets. So what we found was supervision orders were being taken out by the local council and placing us in, uh, they then called it respite care. I think actually the term still used this day, where you went in care if they seemed or deemed it necessary for you to return back to your parents or if they were turning over a new leaf but some of the stuff that john's touched on there was a fee that my parents got into debt with by paying social services and my mother couldn't afford to pay the debt back so at one stage she got into debt with the people who were there to a so-called be helping you and with the problems that you had with your family um and we had problems because in our day, we used to have not social workers, but they were called child care officers. So we called them CCOs. Now, we, I was very, very young when I first went into my first children's home. And I think between the age of uh, one, zero, one to six, I think I went into about five different children's homes. Now, the links and what, Again, John has been saying the the links to a lot of these homes are unique because when we talk about paedophile rings and we talk about pit things, 
not only are the punishments similar to what they do, but the methods, the torture, the torment, and the agony and the suffering they bestow on their victims is exactly the same. So we had a real tough time. I mean, I, I, we, I remember the house we were in, um, we just used to stand outside pubs because our parents were going drinking all day long. We were standing at a glass of lemonade was probably brought out to us and a packet of crisps or something like that. We didn't eat well. Uh, we, I was very skinny and malnutrition. I, I was very, very, not, well, none of us were. Um, we, when we talk about bread and dripping and white bowls of lard, those are the things that we used to live off. And we used to kind of live, a treat was a thing called pie and mash. We used to have a pie and mash shop. Uh, we used to go there um, and that was because in the old days, we used to have sixpences that you used to put in a telly. And we got a refund when the guy came round. He gave you so much silver back. And so that was beer money for my parents. And it was a sixpence or something like that for you to go to the pie and mash shop. One, one meal a week, you probably went and had it down at the pie and mash shop. And you was just lift off grease, basically, for the rest of the week. Um, but our first house, my mum was... Um, in the pub and my dad was in the pub and uh, she left the iron on and it burnt the house down in Mardell Street in West 12 and that was near the um, Gold Oak Road um, and the house burnt down and the only thing I can remember of that age is um, we was at the pub and we came down and we saw all this water on the road and the hoses everywhere and our house was absolutely black and I remember the plates being really really black um, and I had this tortoise this toy and you pulled it on a string and it front and back legs moved as you pulled it. But it, it was kind of, it, it was badly, badly fire damaged. And, you know, you couldn't do the actions uh, because of the damage that was done to it. And then, of course, the council had to rehouse us and they put us in uh, a place called Stowe Road. So we went to 41 Stowe Road in uh, Shepherd's Bush. And that was near the Uxbridge Road. And um, we went to there and we had this kind of like middle floor flat. Um, coal fire, two bedrooms. So there was uh, two sisters, another brother, and myself. All four of us slept in the same bed. You know, um, we, we we didn't go down into the basement at night because the basement was alive with sewer rats. Um, and the streets in them days, they used to have these uh, metal round lids where the coalman used to come and lift them, pour the coal, and it went straight into the cellars. And these rats used to go along the cellars from house to house from the sewers. And they were the biggest things you ever saw in your life. And I remember once looking down because I, I, I peeped my head around the window with the door and looked down the stairs. And all you could see was these eyes and just glaring eyes, you know, fluorescent eyes. And um, I saw one close up one day because it nearly knocked the woman upstairs down the stairs one day. And the thing was like a dog. It was huge. It was like a Yorkshire Terrier. That's how big it was. And, uh, you know, like a medium size, not a, a little one. And it is big, horrible yellow teeth. And at nights when we used to be in the bed, we could hear them scratching at the door trying to get in. <sighs> and it was horrific. And we just used to cuddle up in the bed. We had no heating or anything in the bedrooms. And we used to have ice form on the window. And, and we used to all just have like a, this, this one bed for all four of us, my two sisters and my brother. Um, but my father was uh, very abusive when he in drink uh, and he used to take a leather belt to me. And I don't know why I got quite a bit of a brunt of 
beatings. But um, he took the leather belt to me. Um, I can remember as young as probably four that I was being beaten by my own father. Uh, yeah, with a leather belt. And um, it was quite hard. And my mum, to, to, to control this as well, she used to hit us with these stiletto heels. And she used to aim for your head with the stiletto heels to try and punish you. Uh, and I didn't know so much about it, but my sister Anne, and I used to call because Anne was always left to look after us, my oldest sister, by five years difference between me. And that's quite a bit of a difference, actually. And so I used to call her Mummy Anne because she was the oldest sister and, and she did most of the looking after you. So anyway, we went in and out of respite care, backwards and forwards to different children's homes. I think I can name a few. Ellsfield House, that was something to do with Wandsworth Council. And it was like a holding pen. They put you in there until they found a place for you to go to some other place. And that was quite abusive in there. I don't know what happened to me really young ages, you know, because I can't really tell. Uh, I know bits and pieces, the regimental things like Oakley Street, where he had rows and rows of sinks along the wall and the decor and kind of old Victorian type of buildings or Edwardian buildings like in Albert Street. Um because it just it was just before Albert Bridge, Oakley Street, and uh, it was down there, uh, and uh, I remember that one quite well. Um, very high up, we were looking down at the street, and it just just it was just cruel that you know you was taken away from all your family, and uh, and I was kind of like I don't know, I, I just. I didn't really know too much about what was going on to me. I remember at around about six years of age, I got taken to Marlebone Juvenile Court. Uh, again, uh, court order was taken out for us. Placement was made. And I went to Marlebone Magistrate at court. And uh, the judge looked down at me. And uh, I'm looking up at the judge. I, I'm trying to work out what it was. I can see this unicorn. And uh, I thought, I've never seen a horse with a horn out of its head. And I wonder what it was of trying to make it out. And this lion and the, the coat of arms symbol. And this judge is looking down at this six-year-old boy and said, would you like to go to the seaside, sunny boy? Now, I've never been to the seaside. And, you know, it, it, it was so cruel that the establishment straight away was telling a young child of that age that you were going to get a treat. You're going somewhere nice. It's going to be a nice place. And I was taking this uh, Black Mariah uh, to Beach Home uh, in Banstead, Surrey. And uh, God, it was, it was a huge, huge place. Uh, they called it Beach Home because it was lined by beach trees. The avenues, the top end and the bottom avenue, were lined by these huge, probably 100-year-old beach trees. And Beach Home goes back to the 1800s. And so... When people talk about historic child abuse, Beach Home uh, has this historic element to it. So what happened was the Black Mariah pulls up. They take me into the offices first. And there, there begins a, a processing. Uh, you know, they just start talking to you and so blah, blah, blah. I was too excited to see the seaside. I, all I was, I was just kind of like bubbling. All I wanted to do was get to the sea and see the sea. You know, I didn't care about what they were doing or anything. And they took me uh, from there to the stores and they took all your clothing off of you and they put me in a pair of shorts. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want them. 
I want my own clothes back. You know, I, I'd not been put in shorts before, even coming from our background. I, I, I don't remember shorts being put on me, and these shorts were horrible. And then you had all the clothes, they had these labels in them, and every part of your clothing had a label in it saying Beach Home. Uh, and uh, it was a white label with red writing sewn in. And then there was a gap for your name either to be written in uh, some sort of ink or a biro. Um, and every single item of your clothing, you, you, it was as if you was being labelled. Uh, your pants, your socks, your flannel, uh, every single clothes, every single client was done. And then one of the, uh, um, we had to call the staff from the office, Misters. So it was Mr. Dicker, Mr. Banner, Mr. Bruce. Mr. Banner was the superintendent of Beach Home. Jeffrey Banner. And um, I was taken down uh, the bottom end of the avenue. Um, there was 12 houses down one end and 12 houses up the other end. And they were all named after trees like laburnum, larch, ash, beech, maple, oak, thistle, lime, carrier, um, and ash, you know, all the, that, that type of thing. So they took me to a house called Laburnum. And I remember because they had a yellow tree and the yellow blossom. I always remember the, the yellow the flowers and the, 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 the Laburnum tree. And the door was painted yellow as well. And it had a brass plate on it. All the house names were in, had these brass, brass plates on the doors. And I was taken into this house and uh, the front door opens. And there's this woman looking down at me through her glasses like this. Right. And if I said to you, Sean, that she was the splitting image of somebody fictional like Hilda Ogden, where she had this penny on, she had her hair and rollers, and she was the absolute splitting image of this Hilda Ogden. And uh, she was very stern looking and she's looking down at me very, very stern. And she introduced me, and we, should, we was told we have to call them aunties and uncles. So the office staff, we had to call misters and missus. The house parents, we had to call them aunties. They, our new guardians would be called auntie and uncle. So I had these two women, Audrey Wilson and Grace Robinson. Uh, anyway, they took me inside, got the children to show me where I was going to be sleeping in my dormitory and bits and pieces, and they took me around and showed me around, and the kids were saying to me, whatever you do, do not call her Granny Grace. She hates that. She really does hate it. She will punish you if you, if you call her Granny Grace. And I'm going, where's the seaside? Where's the seaside? I'm so interested in seeing the sea. I want to see the sea. You know, I've not been to the seaside. And I'm looking at the back and the fences and looking over the distance over towards your way, and, <clears throat> and uh I can't see the sea. And, and there was a little bit of a haze. And I said, is that the, the sea over there? And they said, no, you know, we're near the sea. You know, the nearest place you will be is Brighton, which is probably 60 miles away. So we was landlocked. And this promise had already struck home that I wasn't going to go to the seaside. Mm. And then it, it seemed to go from worse from that day onwards. The beachings, the torture, the carbolic soap in my mouth. In my eyes, the floor scrubbing brush where they scrubbed you in the bath. And they used to hit you all the time. And it was like torture being put in these trousers, these short trousers, because they used to slap you on the backs of the legs. And it really, really did hurt. It really, really, really stung horrible. And, and it was so horrific. And, and then 
they they used to take you in the bathroom and bath you as well, and 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 they would touch you in the bath, uh, and they would do things to you in the bathroom, and they would call you all the names under the sun, you naughty little boy, you dirty boy, you don't answer the staff back, and you'd be being hit, beaten, uh, and, and there was more water on the floor than probably was in the bath, and the, the cruelty and the treatment, the harsh treatment that they gave to you, you know. If you walk past them, they'd whack you around the head. You know, you've got a clip around the ear roll, a slap around the back of the neck. You know, it's just slap around the head, kicked, pushed, punched, everything you could name, they'd do to you. And then one night, I was in the dormitory, and I, I, I was in the boys' dormitory, and, and it's, it's kind of like, it's so, so hard to to imagine this, where... I was in the dormitory and Audrey Wilson came into the dormitory uh, and what we used to have, the beech trees down the avenues uh, had these uh, streetlights and the streetlights used to flicker through the, the leaves and they formed a dancing pattern on the ceiling of the dormitory and you used to look up and you could see the, the wind and the breeze and this was broken by a huge person, like a big person was Audrey. And she was touching me up in the bed and she was feeling me. I could feel like somebody was tiggling me and touching me below. And, and, and this went on for a little while. And I got so frightened. I curled up in a little ball and I stayed in that little ball till, you know, till morning light. And, and I just curled into a tiny, tiny little ball. And I just, as, as tight as I could into, I was so frightened. I was trying to protect myself. I, I, I was so frightened. I didn't know what to do. And because of it, I wet the bed. Mm. I'd never wet the bed at home or done anything like it, but because of what happened and what they did to me, I wet the bed. So in the morning, seven o'clock, they used to come and get you. They dragged me out of bed and said, you dirty little boy. And it was beating me and slapping me, kicking me down the stairs. And they took me into the bathroom. And the thing about the baths and the bathrooms, these big tin baths, uh, cast iron baths type of thing, uh, was almost like a, a punishment chamber. And they, they took me in there run cold bath and told me to wash my sheets out, you dirty little boy, and slapping me, filthy little boy, cretin, you retard, and slapped you and hit you and beat you, and then made me wash my sheets out in this cold, freezing cold water. And then after I'd washed my sheets out, they made me get into the cold water. These are some of the punishments they used to do to you. And then with the carbolic soap, they used to make you scrub yourself with the, uh, the carbolic soap and that, and they'd do it themselves. And then what I try to do is um, I used to have a toothbrush and uh, it was like a coach bolt on, on the door. Uh, and to try and stop them from coming in, used to put a toothbrush in to try and close the door when we was in the bath. And they would come through the windows mm. and they'd come and get you and you'd get such beatings and things like that. And they just did it for, for the joy of it. And it went on nearly every day. I remember, you know, uh, it probably was close to, um, close to um, when um, I first went in there. I, I remember um, I'd been through everything else, and and I saw my sister coming up the avenue because she obviously heard that I was in Beach Home in, in Laburnum, and I just jumped up and ran out the house as quick as I can, threw my arms around my sister, and said, "I don't like it here. I don't like it. You take me away. Take me away, Mummy Ann, Mummy Ann." And Grace Robinson came outside. And she said, get in this house now, boy. 
almost something like you know you'd see in Oliver, and and, and it, she was screaming at her, you know, the, the top of her voice, and she turned around to my sister and said, "You get back to your house now, girl, before you get yourself into trouble," and you'd she'd drag you inside and and what they used to do as well is like at meal times you sit around a, a table and they'd put their meal in front of you and if you didn't like it didn't eat it they would make give you it the next day they'd force you to eat it the next day and one day they gave me this the, the, this fish it was supposed to be a haddock in uh, cooked in milk or something and it smelled disgusting I thought wow that smells horrible uh, and they weren't the best cooks in the world and, and, and they tried to make me eat this fish and I took couple of mouthfuls of it uh, and it was horrible and disgusting and I wouldn't eat it so they gave me the next day and they've tried to force me to eat it again and they sometimes would sit next to you you know uh, to make sure that you did eat your food and if you didn't eat it and anyway what happened was a bone got stuck in my throat and wedged in my because um, they forced me to eat it and it scratched my windpipe and I couldn't eat anything so I kind of lived off bread and jam for about a week but the the, the, the cruelty and the punishment, and they used to lock you in cupboard doors. They used to st stand up and face the wallpaper and stand there for hours and hours until your legs nearly dropping. And you couldn't turn around. And when they were abusing your dormitory, it was almost kind of like regimental. The, the boys would turn and face the wall so their backs were showing, so they weren't seen to be looking and, and, and looking at what you were doing or, or at the house parents because. They were frightened if they saw or didn't think or were seen, they would be next. Um, and that was the very first house I was in. That was called Laburnum. And then from Laburnum, you know, I, I went to the primary school, um, you know, uh, Beach Home Primary School. And I had a teacher called Mr. Margates. And Mr. Margates used to hit you with a ruler and he used to slap it out. <laughs> the things he used to do, slap you around the head. And, and he used to walk up and down the uh, tables, the wooden tables with the ink, I think. And he used to walk up and down, march up and down the kind of like the tables with his hands behind his back. Something you'd probably see in uh, John Brown's school days or something like that. Really, really strange. Uh, if you look at some of the older films, it was very draconian. It was very, very harsh. It was very, very strict. Uh, and he, he'd, I didn't have a very good education in the primary school. My education suffered from it. And because of my shorts, we had a guy called Mr. Whiteman. He was a school teacher. So Mr. Margates, you had Grace uh, and Audrey, uh, Grace Robinson, Audrey Wilson. Uh, Mr. Margates used to beat you in this, in this classroom and never really taught you anything. Uh, Mr. Whiteman was uh, a teacher that had a classroom across the playground. And he used to come up to you and, uh, and get you in the playground in front of everybody else. And he'd go rifling through your trousers. I mean, you was a, a kind of like an orphan. You was a, a kid in a kid's home. You had no belongings, no property, no money, no nothing. You didn't possess a hanky. You had nothing in your pockets. He'd say, what you got in your pockets, boy? And he'd rifle through your short pockets, just feeling you up and touching you up just to get something out of it. And you didn't have anything. I didn't have no possessions. I had nothing. I, I, you know, and, and he was just doing it to touch you up and to, mm. to, to feel with. And, and uh, from there... I went to uh, Larch College and um, I ran away a couple of times. I, you know, it was a thing children did. They used to run away. I tried to escape uh, and I ran away. And I, I remember on one occasion, 
I ran away and oh my god, uh, I got a little boy <laughs> running away trying to get back to Shepherd's Bush from Banstead in Surrey, and I, I, I remember getting to two in back police station, and uh, it was a long, long walk for a, a little lad that from Banstead. Um, I don't know I probably walked. 15, 16 miles, maybe. And um, so I, I didn't know whether to go and give myself into the police and then to take me back. But I thought if they, if they do that, I'm going to get punished even more and, and I'm going to get even more treatment and more beatings and stuff like that. Because in them days, they used to say children were seen and not heard. So you couldn't say anything. You couldn't do anything. If you reported your abuse, you got punished even more. And so you couldn't say anything. You weren't allowed to say anything. And uh, I remember on one occasion, I tried to report my abuses to Banstead Police Station and I got taken back to Beecham in a black Mariah. Um, and then I was called before Superintendent Jeffrey Banner, who used to walk into the offices where, when, where the clock tower was, where the clock was underneath there and go in there and turn right and go down the corridor and his uh, secretary's office faced the church and his office was to the right. And he used to walk into his his room, and he used to have a cane in the in in the corner of the room, and he used to say, "You're heading for that boy," and he used to he grabbed hold of me and put his knee, and he bounced me off his knee in a, in a perverse manner. He was, I think, he was trying to work himself off <sighs> on bouncing me off his knee. This was the guy, the head of the, the children's home, the superintendent <sighs> Jeffrey Banner was was doing this, and he said to me, "If you if I hear any more from uh, from you, because your name is." coming back to me a lot, um, you'll be sent to somewhere like Stanford House or a, a ball store or somewhere like that. And what you used to find years and years ago, that where you had a police station, you had a courthouse. Where you had a children's home, you had a mental institution. The two were always linked. So what they did with children, sometimes if children made a fuss and said anything, to shut them up, they had threatened to send them away or they used to put them in mental institutions. So some children went from Beecham and were put into mental institutions to shut them up mm. or were shipped out. Um, I remember when I was in Laburnum, I remember the coaches coming into Beecham and uh, they used to pull up outside the nursery at the top end, a bit, you know, just a little bit down from Mr. Banner's house. Uh, and were, the, the nursery was there. And these sunshine coaches, they, there was sunshine coaches with rays like of the sun, like arms coming off like beams. And they had like kind of smiley faces on the back of these coaches. I always remember it because they were so distinctive. And uh, they said, you know, rumours were it was something to do with Jimmy Savile that the Sunshine coaches used to come to beach home. But we never saw the children again. We, well, I don't know what happened to the children. That they, they, I couldn't, you know, we, we tried to make out who they were taking. It was very difficult because it was like a military operation. What they were doing was so regimental, so kind of like organized it was something all planned and pre-planned and uh, 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 organized and uh, done and um i got caught one day looking out the window and the staff came in and, uh, and told me get down from that window boy you know what are you doing and they used to shout and you know, bellow at your whack you just on a daily basis this was happening every single day they were giving you hidings for no reason you know they had a duty of care um, we were placed in harm's way and, and all that is immaterial to what they did to you. You know, they were supposed to be our, our guardians looking after us. 
And then I was put in um, a house called Larch Cottage, and uh, that was two doors down. And from Laburnum, we had Laburnum Beach and Larch. And I was put in there with, there wasn't so many of us in there. There was only about 12 boys. Well, Ian McLaren was the house parent of the house, and he used to beat you with his fists. And he used to come and punch you for no reason at all. Um, he beat me up on many occasions. He'd grab hold of me. He was quite a powerful guy because he was almost like um, an athlete. He, he was like a rugby player. He, he was solid. And he, he grabbed hold of you because what they used to do is make you wash up after the meals. And one person would either dry up or two people would dry up. You'd wash up or whatever, whatever duties they made you perform. And you had to do it. And he would come up behind me, put me in a stranglehold and push his body against the cupboards. And he was rubbing up against you. And other times it'd get you on the floor and he was hitting you and that. And he would sit on your back and he would rub his testicles on your back and things like that as if he was riding a horse. And if you tried to fight him, and I remember one day he hit me so hard with a, a punch. He lifted me off the floor and I landed into the, the living room. You know, uh, and he was doing it. He was bathing boys at 12 years of age. And uh, they had this thing with his carbolic soap. They used to use that for punishment. It was kind of like the same um, torture and same methods of punishment. And I've heard this so many times from other people that, like the paedophile rings when they talk about it, these guys went on to other children's homes and used the same methods they'd used in one home to in another home. So this carbolic soap method and these beatings were done by the same perpetrators in other children's homes as well. And then um, I, I went from there to, um, I, I had a few problems with my education. I, I didn't do well in a primary school because of what happened to me. I was a very timid young child, uh, a malnutritioned. I was skinny, run, um, call me whatever you want. Um, we used to have a sick bay there and we used to get our treatment there. And sometimes we didn't know what they were giving us. They were just told us to take these tablets and we used to take these tablets. They used to make you line up at seven o'clock in the morning when you came downstairs and you had to line up and go into the kitchen under this huge dining room table. And um, they used to get this big tin jar uh, uh, and it was malt or something. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And I used to get a tablespoonful and stick it in your mouth and you had to have it. And as much as you hated it, they used to make it do it or hold your nose and put it in your... Mm. They, they forced you to do these things. Uh, and, the, and then I went to um, Ash after 
I went from Larch and there was a guy called Gordon Reed, who was uh, another abuser and he used to punch you uh, in the back of the head. You walk past and he'd punch you. Would you look at that boy? Bang. And it would it, hit you. And then one day he hit me so hard in the head. I didn't even feel it. And I just turned to him and I said to him, you can't hurt me anymore. I've had so many beatings and so much punishment. And, you know, for, for a child to say anything, you, 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 you didn't have a voice. You had nowhere you could go. No one you could tell. If you told a story, it was classed as you're telling lies or you're telling stories. You don't say that about members of staff. And yeah, I, I think I, all I can say, my, my first 25 years of life were very, very rough. I was lost. I was kind of like um, disturbed. Uh, I, I'm sure I had a bit of mental illness from the treatments that I received from there. Uh, and they put me in a hostel. And then when I, I, I asked the council if they could help me find a place when I was going to come up to 18 years of age, um, I left Beecham when I was 16. Um, they, they put me in a hostel, just put me in a hostel. And um, I, I got kicked out. They said, you're 18 now, you're no longer our responsibility. And I went to the council and I slept on the streets outside the council offices in a, asking them to house me and they wouldn't do anything for me. And then I was sleeping rough on the streets of London, sleeping in parks. Um, I remember the soup kitchens at Waterloo Station. And some of the stations used to have these like soup places where it was like a kind of burger van type of thing. And they used to do hot soup and a hot drink and a bit of bread. And they used to give you that. And, and I so you, you kind of like outstay your welcome with friends and family and sisters and brothers and whatever um, by sofa surfing. You know, you, you can't sleep on somebody's sofa forever. And I started to get myself into bits of trouble. Um, and, and I started to drink as well uh, and get myself in, involved in drugs and drink. And I walked to, in front of a, a bus on in Lavender Hill once and got caught by this bus. Um, and I was taking drugs one day and got involved in a fight and had my head smashed open in a, a pub or a, a guy beer glassed me and screwed this uh, glass into my head once. And... Um, I didn't really know too much about it because I was out of my head on Mandy's and um, I used to take speed and all sorts of things and do all sorts of things wrong. Uh, and, and it got to a stage where I used to, um, I, I used to um, put a brick through a shop window. And I thought if I put a brick through a shop window on a Friday, I've got a place to say Friday night, Saturday night and Sunday night. And I won't go to court until the Monday. So I'd only have to find somewhere to sleep four nights a week. And I didn't mind sleeping on the benches and in the park or wherever it was. Bloody hell, this is a lot to process. My brain's just gone like, whoa. Uh, and, um, and I got myself uh, into so much trouble, Sean. And I ended up going to prison uh, for doing things what I did. Um, being silly on drink and stuff like that. I went into Brixton Prison, and you see all sorts of things. And uh, Before we get to the prison stuff, can I just ask you a few questions about what you just said? Let's go back then to you going into the cur in the very beginning. What was the actual reason they gave for putting you into cur? <sighs> Sorry. It's okay. Fine. Doing brilliantly. 
It's difficult. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. You're absolutely fine. Just take your time. Did they, did they, did they say it? there's a specific reason you have to go into Kurd? Did the government say no? Okay, no, my next question is then, when you went into the Kurd, you said, like, you know, you thought you were going to go and see the beach and all this kind of stuff, and then these things happened. How mentally did you adjust the first time something happened? Like, are you in shock? What, 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 what could you take was, us through it a little bit? No, the, 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 the treatment was okay. My father used to, when we lived in, 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 in Shepherd's Bush, um, and my father used to come back in a drunken stupor. And he used to, I don't know why, but he took it out on me for some reason. And we had this table in the front room. And it was this cardboard box that was underneath this table. And I used to hide in the, this cardboard box under the table because I knew I would get it when my dad came in. And, uh, you know, you should just take the leather belt to you. And uh, I don't know why. And... Uh, so it affected me at a very young age. And how old were you then? Uh, I was only four or five. I mean, going in, in between respite care, I mean, I was virtually in, in you know, I, I, I think the, the, this shows records of me being in care in um, 1959. If I was born in 55 and it shows me in care and care records in 59 and then beach home in the 60s and so long like that, and there were several houses like um, there was places like Oakley Street, Ellsfield House, um, and there were other children's homes names. There was one in Camberley, and um, uh, another place. Um, there's there's quite a few. I managed to get my records in the end, but what makes it the the whole thing worse about it, and what brings it back now, is that. For whatever I went through in my thirties, when I met my wife, I used to wake up in the middle of the night fighting and kicking out and, and, and jumping up in my sleep and fighting in the room. I was fighting them shadows where, you know, I saw the dancing patterns on the ceiling in the care where I was being abused in the, in the dormitories. And, um, you know, I, I was fighting them shadows and, um, my wife used to calm me down, pat me in, and calm me down and settle me down. And then I kind of, you know, accepted it. And um, I was offered a, you know, a chance to, to move in with, well, with Kathy. And I left London because all I was doing was drinking and getting myself into States. And, and I, I would have ended up in a doorway somewhere. And, uh, or probably dead. I don't think I could have um, survived uh, what I went through because I was mentally disturbed, I think, um, by it all. And uh, it really did affect me. And then, as I say, you, you, you kind of, it was weird. There was a little bit of a saviour in there somewhere because when I moved to Lincolnshire from London, um, I was doing odd jobs and bits and pieces. I was just doing a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, and there was a job for a caretaker going in a school. And I thought, I don't think I'll get the job because I've got a criminal record. And I went in uh, and I said to the head teacher, I put my cards on the table, but I've been brought up in childcare. I know I've had a lot of problems and I've got myself into a little bit of trouble. And I've even been to prison. But, um, 
you know, they do a CRB check on you anyway, so they can find out exactly how bad you were. Uh, um, so I did that for 15 years. And I, what I managed to do is by the time I was in London, I was doing some plumbing work and I, I, I tried to get jobs doing this, that, and the other. And I, I did work for a plumber for quite a while. Uh, and I was trying to make, you know, it wasn't all bad because I was trying to make a life for myself, you know. Um, but I, 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 was, I was naive and stupid and did silly things. And I, I don't know whether it was psychologically I wasn't the full ticket, you know. And, um, you know, the light was on, but no was, you know, the light was on, but no one was home. Uh, I was, wasn't educated, uh, uh, you know. But I managed to survive. I, I don't know how I survived. Uh, you know, it, but Beecham was such a horrific place. It, it was historically abusive. It, it go uh, going back to the eighteen hundreds. It was for the poor children of Kensington and Chelsea. They went there. It was workhouses. The kids used to come out of them houses, cottages, to a brass band at one stage, and they used to join on the end of the brass band and they used to march them off to the workhouses. So the reason why. I, I jumped to the opportunity to do this film was because Beach Home story has never been told. And you can see I'm 66 and it still affects that 66 year old man. And I saw shrinks and all sorts of people. Uh, and the shrink said to me, Alan, there's nothing wrong with you. You've got a memory. And the only thing that is your memory will never let you forget these things. Uh, uh, and, you know, like I said, I got this job, um, head teacher, give me the job. I stayed there for 15 years. I worked my way up from, because um, I'd done the plumbing stuff like that. I could do the plumbing in the school. I did the um, grounds maintenance and the, in the end, they made me site manager. And I, it was a really good job for me. And I, and I was done well. And then I moved to, uh, to Louth because my wife wanted to be near her children. And then uh, a few years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from Surrey Police. And, uh, so police here, um, we've had a report. Somebody's walked into a police station and said they was abused in a place called Beach Home. And your name has been mentioned. Can we come and interview you? So the worst part about that is, you know, if you pick a septic wound or, or that wound, it will turn septic again. If you open that can of worms or that tin, you're you're going to open a hole that you try to forget or put in your past. And they came to interview me, and like I, you know, sometimes you just can't help it. The emotion sometimes finds that weak part of you, finds that child within you. You know, at the end of the day, we're just vessels, and there's part of you that will find, you know, um, the weakness, and it it does come out of me. It does come out of me, and. I've I've done this at demonstrations because I, I I go and do a be a child campaigner now and this is what I do now. And I was at um, a rally in Nottingham, and I broke down, and thousands of people were shouting Alan Alan Alan, <laughs> and John you, yeah. was standing next to me, <laughs> and it even got John that the raw emotion of these people calling my name made me worse. What we got to look at, Sean, is that. Uh, Going back two years prior, we just Alan and myself stood outside, you know, the, the Plaza area in front of Hammersmith, getting pissed on by the rain, 
And then two years later, you know, 24,000 people shouting and clapping for him wow. to speak. So it's well, come a long way. Your passion and your emotion is what makes your message yeah, oh, absolutely. resonate because with people. I would hate it to happen to anybody else. Now, what I've done is to make everything above board, I've started a limited company. I've called, um, you know, I opened a, a group called Beecham Action Group. What I'm trying to do is try and raise some money, but I do take them on. I want to take the, the, the council on because, you know, they put me in harm's way and they put me, um, they had that duty of care. Now, all I've ever had is that brick wall. They've never tried to help me. I've written to all the politicians. I've written to uh, Labour councillors, Tory councillors, CEOs, mayors, you name it. At once with Anne Hammersmith, only to be shot down. And it, I could not get my records from Hammersmith Council, my birth borough, although once with... It, it's like John was saying earlier on, when you're talking about the LCC, the London County Council, and then the GLC where they separated the birth the boroughs up into like Camden, Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea, uh, Hammersmith and Fulham, um, and all these boroughs, well, then, then you now have a mayor of London. The, the amount of children's homes were, and I don't think London... At the heart, the, 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 the city of our country, the, the, the main capital of our country, the amount of abuse that's gone on in London it doesn't, doesn't even come to the, to the surface. You know, we hear about abuse happening in Scotland, uh, Jersey, Northern Ireland, and various parts of other parts of the country. Uh, yeah, but you very rarely, and this is why I, I wanted to come on, because I wanted to talk about Beach Home. It was almost like a forgotten... I mean, at one stage, they reckon there was 900 children in Beach Home. And when I was there, I should say there was a, probably about between 240 and 300. But there's still a lot of children. There's still a lot of children. And those children were affected really, really badly. Some went on, uh, one guy went on to murder. Other people had psychological problems. Do you know who he murdered? I, 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 don't, I don't know. The police just said that. There, um, there was a story that when in 1968 uh, the church got burnt down in Beecham, and people talk about SRA and satanic ritual abuse. Whether that was happening in Beecham, I don't know because I, I was too young. But people would often say late at night you could see the candles flickering in the church altar type of area late at night. But who would be in the church at that time of night and, and what was going on? And then for in 1968, I think I came home for a weekend and they allowed, as you got a bit older, to come home at weekends. And I used to come home and then I'd go back by a Sunday night. Um, and I remember when I was home one night, my mum took an overdose and tried to kill herself. And uh, all these things that happen. They all stay there, uh, and you, you know, you go through so much, and and, and, and it's horrific. It is torture. It's uh, abuse of every sort: physical, mental, sexual, uh, and you're just a pawn in in the whole complete system of, and 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 it's not nice. Do you remember your first day in Beach Home, or is it yeah. too long ago? What could you take us through your first day? 
the very first day I was excited because I thought I was going to see the sea. I was going to be in the seaside. So all the way there, I, my excitement was just to go to the seaside uh, and for me to be so disappointed and then go through the process of, you know, being psychoanalyzed and then being taken to the stores. When you say you were psychoanalyzed, what did they specifically do? Um, they just ask you questions uh, about yourself. and, and I, 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 It was just basically uh, just processing you. Like personality tests. It, it was, yeah, it was kind of like, um, it was a lot of talking, a lot of people, you standing in a room like a lone person and there was staff everywhere. And it was, am I being vetted? Am I, I don't know what the word is, Sean, what they was trying to do to me, but it was kind of like a psychoanalyzing. What have we got before us? What boy have we got before us? What, you know, what methods are we going to take with this boy? What do we have to do for this child? Or what would happen to this child? And then the placement of house makes a difference as well. Because... It's a horrific story right through my life because they, they, they put me in a house, my brother in a different house, and my two sisters in different houses. So as a family, we never, ever share, share the same room ever again in life. Ever again? No, never again. They were on different journeys from, yes. then, from that moment. Yes. That... We never, they didn't put us in the same house as a family. It was never a family again. How did that separation anxiety feel? Horrible. Horrible. Could you get any messages to them? Yeah, I was close to my I was close to my oldest sister. Um, my brother Frank turned into a raving nutcase. He was like my dad. You know, my dad used to stand, if I remember rightly, in long john, pissy yellow long johns, and want to fight the street in a drunken stupor, and calling all the neighbours and everybody, all the C U and T's under the sun. Uh, he was a very aggressive, very uh, abusive man. Well, he beat his own son w with a, a leather belt. Uh, you know, not telling what he did to the to, to the, the others. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was none of it was any. <laughs> it's, it's hard to accept that what they did to you. It was all a form of punishment. You know, the fact that the authorities are saying you're going to the seaside. The fact that these people are supposed to be your guardians and abuse the role that they were given to look after children and, and to treat you in such a, an appalling manner and, and to do things to children. These weren't qualified people to look after children. You know, they were perverts. When you got assigned to your house then, what was your sleeping quarters like? So when you went up the stairs... What, what, what you had, we weren't allowed to go in the front door. Never, ever allowed to go in the front door. As children, we had to use the back door. And as you went in the back door, you know, with the Colt coach bolt again, and it was quite uh, closed quite viciously, and, and there was a toilet as you came in the back door. And we was told, you only use that in emergencies. You have to go outside to the outside toilets. So there was four toilets outside, in, 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 like a shed, and, and we had to go to an outside toilet in the freezing cold and that. And there was a little alcove where the coke was for the boiler house, and where they used to make you do chores, and like the washing up, as I explained. 
or you've got the coking or the coal in, and they used to have park ray fires, were, were rubbish. And the, it was such a cold, cold place. And then as you came in the back door, you had like a cloakroom, and all the coats down that corridor were hung up by the kids where all the cloaks, coats and, and jackets and stuff like that went. And um, then there was a stairs right next to the toilet that took you upstairs to the dormitories. So this end you had the boys' dormitory, and the other end you had the girls' dormitory. And then in between, the, there was a corridor, and you had these huge cupboards, which had all the sheets and bedding and stuff like that in, um, and probably clothing or whatever. And um, you had doors that went into uh, the staff quarters, you know, like the, 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 the house mother, the assistant would have their own rooms permanently. So that was their room. They used to lock their own rooms, used to go in their own rooms. You never, uh, I, I, I went into Audrey Wilson's room once, right? Um, but I don't remember too much about it. I just remember her taking me into her room, but I, I can't remember too much about that. I just remember going into her room because I, I just remember the smell from her. She was very, very unclean she was very very smelly kind of woman uh, uh suffer from a woman's problems and uh, and bo she had very very strong musky smell about her she was horrible and the stench was horrible from her uh, and you know I, I don't know what happened I can't, I can't remember everything that happened to me because so much happened to you as a child you know it, it, it's it's horrific enough talking about it and going back to them years and you know, you 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 went there. You had the kitchen, this massive kitchen, to the left, just after the cloakroom, and um, then you had the sinks there, and there was a big glass window that faced the cottage. The next day, and so they was like turned facing each other, the houses, the cottages, and uh, so you was looking from one kitchen into the other kitchen, and then the house was kind of reversed. So whatever way your house was, the house would be the opposite direction, and then you went upstairs, and you had the boys' dormitory. Yes, uh, something like sometimes two bunk beds, then some single beds. Then you had two cubicles for the elder boys and they had double bunk beds in them. And then you had the same sort of scenario in the, the girls' room. And then down the other end, you had a bathroom, which the staff were only allowed to use. You weren't allowed to go into. You weren't allowed to use it. You had to go into the bathroom downstairs. And then you had the office opposite the front door as you came in. Uh, and, and it was it was quite appalling, really, because I remember I, I was some like some sort of case file. I had um, a CCO called uh, Mrs. Lazenby. She's my childcare officer to start off with, and she was with us for a couple of years. And she was fantastic. And the family got on well with her. My sister got on well with her. And then after that, it was like I got a new CCO on a regular basis. And it was like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I, I wouldn't engage with them because... And I used to get beaten for it and um, because I, I, why should I talk to a stranger every month and tell her about my problems or whatever? And the staff used to say, if you say anything, you will be punished. And they used to have a day book and everything. They used to write everything down or what you did and what you didn't do. And, um, yeah, it's very, very strict. So did you start out in that dorm on what kind of a, bunk was it a double bunk or just a normal bunk i started off um they put me in a this bed underneath a window looking up the avenue in a single bed and that was my bed for virtually the whole time i was in laburnum and how did you feel that first night 
Uh, I, I cried all night. Crying all night. I cried all night. Uh, I, it, it was because the, the patterns from them trees played a very, very important part on your imagination because it was like ghoulish. It was kind of like scary. It was kind of like howlish. It was horrible. The, the surrounding, you're looking like the room's alive. You know, you're not alone. You know, you, you feel like there's, there's a presence within. And they were the beech trees, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. The beech trees were making these dancing patterns and they just reflected all over the walls and, and the ceilings. And the ceilings were the worst. If you lied in bed and just looked up, you could just see these patterns. Have you watched The Queen's Gambit? No. Okay. Just one, because I'm just thinking of the dorm layout, like the, the beds and everything, if it, whether it's similar to that. Um, she was like having these weird hallucinations as well, but they were putting them on drugs, the kids as well. Yeah. Were they putting you guys on drugs? Yeah, they were giving us some stuff that were, I, you know, the same scenario is like my medical records were hard to come by. My education records were hard to come by. Uh, my social record, my every, every single thing that you do, medical, whatever it is, whatever format, whether it be health, wealth, or, or being, was hard to come by or wasn't available and they either got lost or destroyed in fires. When I did eventually get my files and I went through my files, it, it, it wasn't a story that I tell you. It gave the people's names. It gave the cottages. It gave the dates. But some of it was redacted and taken out. Some of it was written in such appalling handwriting, you couldn't make it out. And a lot of it was missing. There was gaps between dates. And it was like they kept records of certain bits, but certain bits went missing and were never accountable for. And, and I managed to go through them. And they said I asked my records in the 80s because I said I was going to write a book and I'm still writing that book and uh, I've done so much of it but uh, you know it's getting someone to help me with it because I've got a little bit about me but I'm, I'm not um, academically sound if that makes sense what's well, everything you've been through bloody hell you know you, I'm, you're a brilliant speaker coming in here today and saying what you're saying but um, I think I would have gone crazy. Yeah, you see, it weren't easy. There were, yeah. there were times, Sean, and I won't pretend. There were times. I stood on a station. Um, uh, I stood on Watford, sat on Watford Station one day, and, and I felt like jumping. Mm. Um, I was, was it Trellick Tower or somewhere like that? Uh, Labbit Grove somewhere. And it might have been Trellick Tower, Labbit Grove. And I was very high. And I didn't know whether to let myself go. Because I was going for a, that was when I was still in the hostel. So not only did I go from the abuse from the children's home, I went straight into a hostel. I was in a bad place. What pulled you back from the brink of suicide? Weren't brave enough. Mm. I don't think I was brave enough. I don't think I was brave enough to kill myself. What was an average day in Beach Home like? Abusive. Uh, very abusive. Could you take us through it? Like you go and get your breakfast. Uh, blah, it, was, blah, blah. it was like a military operation. You know, you got up at seven o'clock in the morning. They got you up. And they was very strict. If you didn't make your bed properly, they make you strip it again, make you make it again. And this was the kind of discipline they try to install in you that, you know, you did as you're told. If you didn't do as you're told, 
you'll do it again, or you got hidings or beatings, or you know, uh, um, then you'd get dressed and you'd come downstairs, you'd line up at the kitchen table, and you'd get your this malt shoved down your throat, and then you had to go into the the, the bathroom, and you had to have a wash clean your teeth and then you had to sit at the kitchen at the the dining room tables and we used to have about five tables in the living room and we used to sit around about there was about five chairs wooden chairs wooden tables and we used to sit there and um yeah we just had these set procedures that we had to do um was the privacy during your washes and baths or were they interfering yeah yeah so they they the the bath time was like because i remember uh, they got another guy uh, who abused me as well. Was Pink McTavish from Kerrier? He was looking after the boys in Kerrier House, and um, at the top end of the avenue, he was a big. He had hands like shovels, and uh, he when he hit you, you stayed hit. He, you felt it when he hit you, and he gave me Grace Robinson or Audrey uh, Audrey Wilson and and, and Grace Rob uh, Aunt Grace Granny Grace Grace Robinson couldn't look after. We're saying I was too much, you know. I, I was probably trying to fight back. I was trying to stop the torture and the torment whatever way I could. And they went to Pete McTaffrey and said I was quite a disturbed boy and uh, mentally um, disturbed, um, a retard. And they took me. he took me to his house and he said, they tell me things that you've been doing this and doing that and other. And he gave me a few beatings and slapped me around the office. They used to take you in the office and give you an hiding in the office where no one else could see because it was behind closed doors. Um. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And I'd get, he'd give you an idea. And then he'd turn around and say, go and get in a bath. And I used to have this thing about the bath. It was like a ritual. You know, you had to go into the bathroom and then they'd come and check on you in the bathroom. And they used to look at you when you was naked in the bath and... And, you know, they used to make you stand up and, you know, they stare at you and didn't matter what you did. They were too powerful, far, far too powerful for a child. You couldn't fight back. I mean, I tried, but he was so powerful. I couldn't do anything. I was just so defenseless. And But it was, Laburnum was so abusive. It was like on a daily, I don't know. Why did my dad pick on me, the youngest? Why did I get picked on by Grace Robinson and Audrey Wilson? Why? Why did they go for me? I mean, you know, I was no special kid. I was just a kid, you know. 
Did they have recreation, like sports and stuff? We used to have a sports day uh, up the top field, and uh, they used to have their own kind of like, um, there was a cobbler's in Beach Home. There was a photography thing. I did a bit of photography when I was in there. I went to the Scouts when I was in there. Uh, I didn't like that. They used to make you go to church twice on a Sunday, once in the morning, once at night. They used to make you put on your Sunday best. You had to dress up to go to church. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. They made you do it. You had to get up first thing. You got into your Sunday best. And, and you used to go and get changed, I think, once a week. They would only give you clothing on a Saturday. And the only time you ever got any new clothes is when you went on a summer holiday. They'd take you on a coach and... Uh, Coaches came from Epsom to take the kids. And you used to see the coaches lining up outside other houses and cottages and think, oh, they're going on holiday, they're going on holiday. And they'd take you to somewhere like Clacton in, in a, a, a B&B. And that was a treat in itself because they couldn't punish you when you was what they'd shout at you, but they wouldn't lay a finger on you in the outside world, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, because no witnesses, no crime, they're thinking. Yeah, so did your parents visit you? No, my dad died when I was 10 years of age. And um, my mum, my I, I she just went to pieces. And uh, she, it's a cruel story. The whole of it, everything is a cruel story because another thing when, what happened was my sister Marjorie, she was abused by a guy called Uncle Gray, Mr. Gray. And his wife were very abusive. They got done in 1971. Uh, and another girl that is part of the Beecham Action Group, um, she was locked up in an institution because she threatened to um, say something about the abuse. That he was found in bed with another child. Mm. They did the same thing with my sister. They abused her in the bathroom. Mm. This is the torture they used to do to girls and that. Um, you know. Uh, and you remember my, my sisters were three and five years older than me. So if I was, they were starting to develop and whatever the case mm. might have been, they might have, you know, uh, they used, the bathroom was uh, an attack place. The office was an attack place. Um, the bedroom door, they could close the bedroom doors. They could, I, 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 did, I did do a thing on Wake Up UK and it was closed, called Behind Closed Doors with Alan Merritt. Those closed doors are very, very significant to me because what happens behind closed doors is something you can't talk about. You can't see. You might hear it. And like John turned around and said about hearing, seeing, and and, and whatever. You, you don't see a lot of it. You don't hear a lot of it. There's this kind of like wallpapering and pasting over everything and anything that's got to do with this form of abuse on children and minors, that how these powerful can get away with and superior to what you are as a child because you've you've got no defense you've got no nothing you, you you're, you're a lamb to the slaughter and that's what it felt like and it was very very harsh so you described some horrific physical abuse in your home before you went into car would you say to an extent that that it made you less shocked when it did happen in car because you'd already suffered some physical abuse at home or were you re-traumatized all over again no you're you're traumatized oh big stop big time you're you it's you don't expect it to happen you don't you thought think you were safe yes you thought you were safe 
I'll just take quick comfort breaks. Sean. Yeah, go for right? it. Go Sorry, for it. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I'm just yeah. had to pick my yeah, right yeah. mind. I'll be back. Um, yeah, you you just have to accept everything that you're told, everything you do. Now, I think I ran away from Beach Home two or three times to try and escape, and I became. Now, I've been asked this question before: If you've been abused, do you become an abuser? Mm. And I have to say, and I was a little bit guilty for the older boys would make you fight some of the younger boys. If you didn't fight them, they would beat you up. So you had to fight them. They say, make them dance or something or punch them in the head harder, harder. I don't want to. I don't want to. And then they'd whack you or punch you. And if you don't punch the other lad. so kind of i am so guilty for doing that but i was made to do it it made me out to be a little fucker and i didn't want to do it sean i didn't want to be like but some of the older children were abusers themselves and they abused some of the children in there so not only did you get it from the staff you got it from some of the children as well and when you say people who are abused sometimes go abusers that includes self-abuse, doesn't it? Which is, I think, more prevalent. You've suffered this abuse. You don't know how to deal with it psychologically. So you abuse yourself, whether through drugs, self-harm, or, or suicide attempts. Yeah, I, I did all of that. Went through all that, all that emotion, all that. I think, I don't know what it is, Sean, how you could, you, 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 to put it in a nutshell, is there's so much damage done. You know, there's no cure. The only cure is solace in something else, whether it be drink or drug. You look for some alternative to help you get over it. And you try anything to make it go away. And at the end of the day, like the psychiatrist says, you're never, ever going to forget it. And I apologize for breaking down earlier, but... No, no, it, it just makes your story all the more powerful. Don't, no need to apologize. So you, you said the physical abuse started pretty quickly when you got into the ho home. Did the sexual abuse start equally quickly or was that later on? Um, I, the beatings, the physical abuse came first. The sexual abuse came after a little while. It might have been weeks after I'd been in beach home or it wasn't for a little while I noticed it. But, you know... What can you do? I mean, did you understand it at that age because you were no. so young? No, I didn't. I knew it wasn't right, but that's all you can say about it. You, you, why would women want to touch little boys? Mm. You know, why would grown women, what would grown women, I mean, that's easy to say now in hindsight, but when you're a child, it, it, you're, you're, you know, you're in the wilderness. And did that traumatise you in a different way then again? My problem was that it done more damage to me than I can ever make out. Um, I suffer from terrible um, outbursts of um, aggression. Um, I, um, I'm not the most tactful person. Um, I've had so many ding-dongs with employers and I've lost so many jobs by telling, we're being told what to do and people talking at me rather than to me. And I've had that all my life and I won't have it anymore. 
and I've gone through works and jobs like that. I've lost many a job um, through telling the manager to fuck off or whatever the case might be, um, or who you speaking to. Or yeah. I'm no angel. I've done things wrong. I've done silly things. Um, and I went off my head a little bit. You know, I, I, I really did. As you got older and bigger, were you tempted to confront any of your abusers? Did you fantasise about anything like that? See, it's very difficult to say because even in the 70s and 80s, you didn't talk about homosexuals. You didn't talk about gays. Um, there was like, I think it might have been like where queer bashing came into effect. It's a horrible word and horrible thing to say or a term to even use at this moment in time. But all that kind of stuff, Sean, you didn't talk about. You just did not do. You just not talk about. You weren't allowed to. And I think if you've been punished for speaking out or, or, or you know, saying anything, are you frightened that more's to come? And do you just toe the line to try and have the punishment come to an end and to stop? And like I said to you, by the time I got to Ash and I was punched in the head, you, you're almost kind of like, I don't know about immune, but it kind of like bounced off my head is to say, well, how, what can you do to me that you haven't already done? How can you hurt me any more than you've already hurt me? What can you do to me that you can't explain it? None of it is... It, it, it's very, very difficult to explain to a person what it's like to be that little child in a big, wide open world where, you know, you, you could be swimming with sharks. You know, you could be thrown to the crocodiles. You could be, it's thrown to the lions even, you know, and that's what it felt like, Sean. That's absolutely what it felt like. You was just like some sort of bait, some sort of bit of meat, and you were just tossed and toyed with. So obviously you were suffering throughout your ordeal. Did you have an absolute low moment though that you could recall? Uh, I used to try and just blank it out. Um, what can you do? What can you do? You're walking the streets of London, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go. You know there's some food or hopefully that pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, and you just follow it, and you just go wherever it takes you, and I managed to survive. I don't, I don't know how, and to be truthful, if I hadn't met my wife, she saved my life. Absolutely, categorically, she saved my life, because I would have lost it big time, because I was just so distraught, so broken, and just so damaged. Could you expand on what you said about Jimmy Savile and the co-home? Jimmy Savile went to Beach Home in 1972. And I remember being in the dormitories and looking out and seeing these sunshine coaches that are linked to Jimmy Savile. Now, the only way I can explain to you about Beach Home, to me, Beach Home was like a sweet shop to a paedophile. Mm. So Jimmy Savile would have been at home in, in his element with children being able to do what he could do in terms of Jeffrey Banner bouncing them off the knee he's done that in so many times in Jim Fix where he, he had children on his lap and stuff like that 
That reminds me the same of what Jeffrey Banner did to me. And he was in Beach Home in 1970. That's the only record that I know at the same time I left. I wasn't there when Jimmy Savile was there, but he was in Beach Home in 1972. I puked in my mouth, then I had to swallow it back down. Do you have any questions yet, um, James, about Kerr Holmes or Savile? Any, any, any additional information? For the, for the documentary. I'm sorry I um, lost it, but... No, no, you're fine. Honestly, you're doing really it, good. It, it, it's a very, very difficult thing to talk about, you know. It's... You, <sighs> if, you, if you don't say nothing, you know, no one hears you. And, um, you know, you can shout from the tallest building and no one will hear you, you know. Uh, or no one will listen. It's just just... That's what you go through, uh, and, and it does stay with you. How can we protect the kids in the homes now? I think um, anybody who works with children has to be vetted properly. This has got to be the fundamental. Any weak link, they have to do, somebody has to be trained. What I'd say on that, Alan, is that the thing is with vetting, DBS check it, vetting and... CRB or whatever they class it as, paedophiles on the whole, uh, a, a, a sex offender against children will not have any any criminal convictions, hmm. right? Uh, if they do have convictions, it tends to be for dishonest crimes such as deception. On the whole, not like a recidivist offender, you know, like an armed robber will have a history, a catalogue of offending beyond it. Sex offenders are very, very crafty, intelligent. However, they do have very, very high accurate um Lie detector testing, polygraph testing. Make them have a polygraph test. Yeah, that sounds a good idea. They should do it with politicians as well. Politicians, you know, have you had any involvement with paedophilia? Have you got any sexual liking of children? Everyone in position of power should be made to take a polygraph test. Wouldn't be no politicians no. left, would they? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we'll, we'll take their jobs. That's all right. We'll get their money and take their jobs. But, you know, but they're, they're, they're almost absolute. It's a no-brainer. It should be used in a criminal justice system, but it isn't because it will ferret them out. You know? and, and the thing that I, 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 I've found now, I've gone down the common law route uh, and I, I've got away with one or two things using common law. Uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, there's more to a book than just the cover. And you've got to look in that book. You've got to, although I'm not... Um, academically brilliant i can still do things which i've told I've, I've virtually taught myself to read and write um and what i used to, to, to do that was to write student leaf pads i kept writing in the, the student leaf pad as if it was lines if i was doing lines i was being punished again the punishment element comes into it or self-discipline to try and learn from whatever you can grip from life because the only university I ever went to was the university of life. The only thing I ever got out of life is what I put into it. Do you think because of technology then, like you didn't have internet, but like kids in care homes now who have got something's happening to them, they could reach out online to organizations or somebody to get help. Is that, a, is that a feasible thing? These days, but there are loopholes. There are ways, means around it. Because, like John has said about you know, 
uh, wrongs and paedophiles and child abusers and whatever wake or whatever form they could be judges they could be solicitors they could be police officers they could be anybody from any walk of life um but you know i don't think you can counteract it, it, it it's if it's in them and it, as harsh as that might seem children won't be protected these people know the child's mind so even without in the absence of technology People still got their mouth, and they can shout, still shout and scream. Um, that there was a guy. Uh, he he went to Eton. His uh, father is a was a, dead now, but his father was a, a very famous lord, and he doesn't want me to mention it, so I won't. But he stood in Eton Town Centre saying that Eton is nothing more than a rent boy racket. The fagging system in Eton is a rent boy racket, and he was dragged in. He was caned so hard. That that his his skin was ripped to pieces. He said the um, the dean of Eton took a run up and and, and hit him each time. Uh, he was then put under the pupillage of a monsignor um, who went on to rape him, and that was his punishment for speaking out against rape. He was raped. It's a control of the mind and the tongue. Hmm. When you when you take victims of satanic abuse, they they can't even talk. Some of them they they're, they're frozen. Because they know what they do. They bring shame into it. They bring guilt into it. They bring a transference into it. This cognitive distortion. These are very devious people. And then they'll say, we've got police officers. We've got doctors. And we've seen that. We saw that in the Islington care home, you know, where the staff were involved. They were making porno films. They were pimping them out. They were they, they go to the police. These kids do sometimes go to the police. But then what happens? Nothing. And this is the problem you know, and the internet is a two-way thing because years ago you could detect kids that were involved in vice because they'd be on the street. You knew where to find them. You'd go to the, the, the meat rack in Piccadilly. You'd find the boys. You'd go into wimpy bars. The boys are there. You'd go on streets like Market Road in Islington, the, the Caledonian Road in King's Cross, you know, Sussex Gardens in Paddington. You'd find the young girls. You know what else? The internet has taken that away. The internet now, it's all done covertly and these kids are delivered, dropped off, boom, boom. So it's it's a two way thing. I, th I think what we got to do is, is start getting results in in the legal system. Start showing the victims and survivor this is a safe place to be, is to speak out. We are going after these bastards. We are nailing them. Come forward, be part of that that machine that, that does some destruction. How many people that that were abused by the likes of Jimmy Savile in in Beach home, and he went. There was a girls' school down in Surrey that he was going in. I can't remember the name of it now. That when Savile came on the television, was would be screaming and throwing things at the telly, you know. And then they went to the BBC, and the BBC did the same old thing, the same old adage. We've looked into it. There's nothing to see. Please move on. That was a BBC's first response. Yesterday, Alan was at a protest. They went outside the BBC building shouting, shame on you, and throwing paint bombs at the, um, what's the name of the that? The statue. The statue. Oh, I can't remember the name of the guy. It'll come to me in a minute. They're paedophile statues outside, you know, um, the BBC building. You know, time Lang and time place. again. Yeah, time and time again, we are seeing these failings with the same old response. We've learnt, let's move on. And all the time, what's happening? What's happening is there is no justice. No one is arrested. Solicitors are making 450 quid an hour every single hour, guaranteed for the next 10 years. Boom, 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 boom. But what are the survivors getting? 
a third, mm. like I said, a third, sorry, a sixth of our ink of, of our budget goes on the justice system. It ain't working. It's never worked. These care homes have never worked. They've all made money. They, point. they would have beat home, Alan. They would have been given a good budget to feed you, mm. and they scrimped. Yeah. You know, yeah, and and they did it all the time. They they were paid for staff that were meant to do the right job, and they chose not to. These people chose to hurt you. There was a video that um, was made called "Galley's Dead." It's on YouTube, and there's a lot of elements of Beach Home in it. Um, there was a, a Channel Four documentary made. It's got my brother Frank speaking on it. Uh, it was made by Channel Four in the eighties. So, what John said and everything that John said, the uh, it just feeds each other. Everything feeds off of everything that John said. Everything John said is so realistic, so true. When I listen to him, it's a mirror image of life, of what I went through, what I've seen. And like he talks about the BBC, that you know, that you Stuart Hall's, your Rolf Harris's, yeah. your Gary Glitters, you know, the many, many others, like Jimmy Savile's. The Esther Ransons, the fronted child line that knew all this was going on. Johnny Rotten that spoke out about the abuse that was going on at the BBC, only never to be allowed back on the BBC again for speaking out about them. Bands this on top of the pops. Yes. Yeah. Again, we look at child line. I worked on, on, on the police's um, child abuse investigation. Our referrals come from, you know, um, things like schools, social services, right? You ring 999. It's easy. Bang, bang. You ain't got to put any money in. Yet Childline is this 9, 10, 11 digit number, whatever, which I can't remember what it is. Since all my time there, I can remember out of the hundreds, if not thousands of referrals that come in, two, two that I recall came from Childline. Where are they going? What are they doing? You know, she might sit there, you know, and sit and grizzle Esther Ransom saying, I never knew, I never, do you know what? It ain't good enough. Commissioners of police saying, oh, you know, they've slipped through the net. It ain't good enough. Politicians that have got links to paedophilia. It ain't good enough. They have to go. We need to wash them all out. We need to drain this swamp as it is. We need to give the survivors the voice. And we need to start putting proper amends. And if it means that that six of the budget goes on paying survivors, do you know it's a small price to pay? You know, okay, money ain't going to heal it, but do, it's something. One, one thing I would do is, as horrific as it must probably sound, I would do away with amusement arcades and places like that. But the simple reason is the lights and the noise is an attraction to children. A lot of children have ended up going into these places and they've been used by uh, paedophile groups, paedophile rings to attract children. They're, 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 it's, it's, it's like a magnet. You know, you see bright, flashy lights when you're a child and it intrigues you. You know, it, it draws you in. You want to go into these places and you want to see that these places look like. When I went to the seaside, that is the only thing that I used to love. I used to love the lights, I used to love the noise, the, you know, w- without making the noises of the jingles and jangles that, you know, like organs or whatever the case might be, that were attracted. And the mirrors and the reflection of the mirrors and the glass and the colour lights and it, 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 it's, it's well 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 if you look at the most um, uh, notorious paedophile this country had Sidney Cook you know apparently responsible for for a lot more murders than that of Jason Swift 
he run a fairground. And this man was a very, very connected guy indeed, you know, and a very dangerous paedophile. How did they catch him? Um, I, I'm not sure exactly how he was caught. Um, I, I spoke to the best friend of one, one of his victims, but they called him the Dirty Dozen. You know, um, there, one of the, the copper that was in charge of the investigation was a bloke called Stoodley. I, I end up working, his son was a copper as well at Scotland Yard. And um, it was a long-term investigation, but it was fraught with, um, with problems, you know, frustrations all along. Who was the Dirty Dozen? It was Sidney Cook, uh, a bloke called Bailey, another bloke called Oliver. Um, there was a whole group of oh, them. It was, it, was, it was a network. It was mm. a network of paedophiles. Yeah, and they, they were picking children up from amusement arcades, from fun fairs, runaway kids, kids from kids' homes. I mean, Jason Swift w w was killed due to um, internal injuries after three days of raping. And, and, and Because the one thing I've got to be very careful of is there's so much I could say but I'd be in a world of trouble. There was a guy that I worked with. He was on the investigation. I can't remember. It'll come to me. Operation Playland or something. It'll come to me in a minute. And he said there was, there's a well-known uh, British actor who does a lot of children's TV and a lot of comedy. And he said his name was on the client list of Jason Swift during that period of time when he was taking, he said, and we raided his house and it was like a shrine it was like a shrine to young boys. And he said, and what got me was a like, day after raiding him, he was on Blue Peter, you know. But, you know, when you, we was talking about being in, in, in the hostel from leaving Beecham, and we used to go on these trips, that glitter ball, that attraction, that light, that, you know, that, that shiny thing, that precious jewel, whatever you want to call it, I nearly ran away with a fair because I was in the hostel and, and I went and worked on the fair for a few days when I was in the hostel and they said, come with us. And I was getting to the time when they nearly was going to leave Bitchamp, and I was in two minds to become a traveller and go with them because I didn't know what I was going to do next, if that makes sense. Yeah. What happened to your siblings then? What was their fate? So, oh, God. How, how are they now? Um, Margie's died, uh, my middle sister. And that was a story in itself which was linked to Home because um, – she was desperate to have children and give them something she never had. And the partner she was with, she couldn't have children with. So she met somebody else and they, they tried for years and years and years um, fertility treatment. And they said to her, whatever you do, don't stay on it for years and years and years because you could get cancer if you stay on it for a prolonged period of time. Margie was so desperate to give the children something Right. And, you know, hug them and love them like we never, you know, that's the one thing we never have read with no love and affection. That is so, so important in a child's life to be held, to be cuddled, to be, you know, to be part of a, a network or a family, you know, just to be that. That's, you know, you can get infatuated with women when you go out with women. If they show you a bit of affection, it's something you've never had as that child. And it can spoil relationships and you can become your own worst enemy for it. And, and Margie was so desperate to have children. She stayed on this for eight years under the treatment and she ended up getting breast cancer. Mm. And then eventually the breast, the, the, the cancer, they told her she was in remission at one stage and then they found out it went to her liver. Mm. And, and Margie never swore. She never hurt anybody. She never did anything. 
And the day she left Beach Home, the staff took her to Banstead Station. They put her on a train and they didn't want to put her in the carriages. They said to the driver of that train at Banstead Station, is it all right, driver, if she comes up in the cab with you, driver, just to make sure she gets off at her station? And the driver abused her in the cab. Oh, oh bloody oh. hell. God. What about your brothers? Frank's just, he went on to be a black belt eighth Dan and fought for British, the British and European Championships. Um, won quite a lot. But um, he would sooner punch you in the head than shake hands with you. Very, very aggressive. He was, like, we, there is this, it does affect you mentally. You know, it's an imbalance. Of course. And that imbalance in that, you know, you've taken something from a human being, right, that shouldn't be taken. And can I have my childhood back would be one thing I would like to ask for. You know, if I could have my childhood back, if I could have an education, if I could have had some sort of help in pointing in the right direction, you know, I could be a better person. You know, I will do anything I can for anybody. But if you put me into a corner, I'm not that proverbial you rat. I will come at you, you know. And, and, and I don't like saying that because it makes me feel like I'm a nasty person. I don't mean any harm. It's just that what... It's happened to me and what's been done to me is making me that aggressive type of fireball that can't justify it. And you had one more brother. No, f one brother, Frank. One that, brother, that's Frank. It, and two sisters, Anne. Two uh, sisters. Yeah, and, well, and the oldest, eldest, Margie died and Frank. We're all separated. We're all over the country. Yeah, yeah I see. We don't really see each other. Yeah. Um, that split from Beach Home lived with me for my lifetime. Yeah. Is there anything either of you would like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I would say, you know, if there's anything we can do to help children and stop this, because it's a horrific thing to do to a child, to take that innocence away from a child. You take that innocence and it's gone forever. And I would just beg, you know, people that are going to look after children or be with children, you know, remember that little child deserves a, a chance. Anything you've got, John? Well, th these people hide in the shadows, Sean, you know, and y as much as your fear is, their fear is being exposed. You owe them nothing, nothing. You know, anyone who does that to a child, they deserve, you know, all they get, you know, reason obviously but they're the ones that frighten because they know what they're doing is wrong you've done nothing wrong they had a choice you didn't speak up 
speak up, come forward, speak up. You know, Alan's got you can you can find Alan on social media. You've got the Wake Up UK. Yeah, Wake Up UK channel and show, and I've done something like about fifty shows on Wake Up UK, um, and I've interviewed uh, John a few times. Yep. other survivors, um, and, and we we talk about child abuse. Uh, sometimes we have a little bit of a we chat. It's it's a deep subject. You know, when you're talking about this thing, it don't come easy because that little boy, while we've been in this interview, came back out of me. You know, I'm sat here, you know, in a vessel. The released child came out of me talking about what I went through and going back to the times of being that child. And, you know, it's not easy, Sean. It's not easy. Yeah. Can can I do um, a little shout out? We've got, um, you know, a good friend of ours, Wilfred Wong, who's still in prison. Um, he was there, um, we don't know the full facts, but it looks like it was a rescue attempt uh, that, that may have gone wrong. Not too sure, and it's difficult for me to talk about because of, uh, it's an ongoing case. But Wilfred's um, awaiting trial on remand. Um, I used to be on social media and could promote things, but I'm not on it no more. If I could use this to um, just put up uh, Wilfred's prison number and his address, keep his spirits up. He's a good guy that does a lot of good to expose satanic ritual abuse of children. And I know this bloke will die fighting for the rights of children to be safe. Um, and the other one is for our old friend, Pepsi Watson. Poor old, poor old Adam. Oh, man. Oh, he's back in prison. Um, again, it, it's the system not working. You know, it's it really has um, brought him down. And he, he got in a, in a very bad way inside. And as a result, um, absconded and was recaptured and... He's under this IPP system. He's not in a good place, Adam. Uh, he's in HMP Durham. Again, please, can we write to him, really boost his morale? I've got, I don't know if we can pull it up, but this is just in case. So I've got anyone looking, if if we could hold that up for the camera. That's that's Wilfred. We'll, we'll put all all the um, the addresses in the description box below the video as well. And I'll just do that, just in case it's, uh, and there's Adam. Okay, but if you can email those over to me, that'd be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I could just finally say, Sean, thank you ever so much for doing this today for Thanks us. For coming all and giving way. Beach Home that voice that they so much need. And we've got an action group. We've got a, a webpage. We've got a limited company. And we're trying to raise some funds to get um, ourselves some justice, some well-deserved justice. And we're asking people for donations. We're not asking for anything untoward it's all above board um and you know we wouldn't want to try and seek justice for whatever happened there's not many of the survivors alive today but there are a few alive and there's they they still suffer and we just want to try and get them some sort of justice while we can and you know there used to be a whole of protest the first wednesday of every month it's at the moment not going on because of the you, you know health issues out there but you know, there, there's Sue, who's in the 60s, there's Jean, who's in the 70s, and every month they're there, along with Alan, you know, campaigning outside Parliament. We even had Boris Johnson, you know, we accosted him one day, and he turned around and said, nothing to do with me, and just walked on. So this is what we're up against, but, you know, we'll keep going, but God bless. So John and Alan's links will all be in the description box. Please support their work. 
like John said, all these calls coming in about child abuse, police don't do anything. Yet all these calls come in about drugs and people's houses are getting SWAT team raided up and down the country left and right at the expense of tens, if not hundreds of millions of pounds um, of the taxpayers' money. It's absolutely ridiculous. The justice system is upside down. And as you've heard today, you know, we've got to have safeguards in store for the kids. We've got to have laws changed so predators go away for much longer. So there's some kind of deterrent in place because when they know they're just going to get a slap on the wrist, what kind of a deterrent is that? When they know they can just, you know, like the sins of our father priest, join the Catholic Church, they're going to bring a high-priced lawyer in and you're going to get just moved to another diocese where you can just do it over and over again. What kind of a deterrent is that? So these people have got to know there's going to be some serious consequences for their behavior and hopefully, you know, that will start to reverse this um, heinous activity. And we've got all these other people in place now in this network for this mission, as well as Alan and John. We've got Maya, whose um, podcast recently, it's, it's, it's one of the most powerful ones we've ever done. She's getting an absolutely massive response. And the fact that her evil dad mocked the whole system because he knew he was going to get released within a couple of years and wrote a nasty letter to the judge who said he needs a life sentence. How insane is that? And he, the judge couldn't give it him. All he could give him was 10 years, which he had to serve 50%, of which he's already served two, out after three. So we've got Andrew Wallace on board now as well from Unseen, who helped to introduce the laws to change modern-day slavery, human trafficking, so life sentences for traf human traffickers. And, uh, and he also has safe houses for trafficked women. So people could call Alan's charity now if you're a trafficked woman and you can you can be screened and, and go to one of these safe houses. So there's real-world changes you're trying to make and real-world options for people out there who are going through things. If you're a kid in the care home and you are going through something, you know, these these predators say, look, if you tell anyone this is going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. It's a mental trap. Mm -hmm. Reach out, tell someone, and just break it wide open, and more than likely it will stop if you can get that information into the right hands. And there are people out there who can help you. So um, let us know what you thought about this video today. It was extremely powerful. Alan just burned his soul. We salute his bravery. Let us know in the comments. Um, please support these guys by following up on the links in the description box. Huge thank you to Joe and James coming out today to film this. And also a huge thank you to the subscribers. If you've not subscribed yet, subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. So we really appreciate all of your love and support. Brilliant. All right, Alan, give us a hug, man. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Give me a hug after that. Bloody hell. Sorry, <laughs> mate. Yeah, yeah, well done. Wish you all the best. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.